On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Michael Munger, economist and professor of political economy at Duke University, to discuss the classical liberal diaspora, the remnant, the libertarians, and the classical liberals, whose message about liberty and limited government gets lost in a sea of tribal left versus right politics. Uh, A friend of mine who's a leftist came into my office and shut the door and said, I was reading the Federalist Papers. There's some good shit in there. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the the restrictions on government power, those are good things. That's true. And they were two weeks ago when Barack Obama was president. So why are you only coming to me now? And they said, well, I wasn't so worried when my side was in charge. That's the point. We discuss how progressives and conservatives are both convinced that their morality and that their vision for society is correct. We get into details about the classical liberal tradition, how we got to where we are now, and the dangers of wielding the ring of power in our favor. The reason that liberalism exists is, in my view, it was an answer to the constant religious and racial wars of Europe over 500 years. And so it's a kind of second best solution. Liberalism was, as advanced by John Locke and others, liberalism was a solution to the problem of people constantly killing each other if they could get control of the means of exercising coercion. So the frustrating thing about liberalism is that it is putting the power to control the means of coercion beyond the ability of the government to exercise it. And many times, if you're in control of the government, if your team is in control of the government, you think we should we could do such good with this. So it's something like the ring of power that, you know, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the the seductive power of having the ring and being able to use that force of coercion for good, we have to somehow suppress that. So liberalism requires the ability to forbear using powers that you actually might use because you recognize your worst enemy is likely to be able to use the same power against you after the next election. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. But so this is something that comes kind of born out of the Enlightenment. And then we have liberalism now. You know, fast forward a few hundred years, and we get to the point where now liberal has become this kind of slur. And it's become uh, entangled in definition with people who are on the political left. And so it's kind of been given a bad name, in a sense, because conservatives really hate liberals. And the actual classical liberals, maybe we can point to that now and and see if that's the same thing as liberalism, uh, tend to feel kind of uh, disenfranchised by the whole thing because they're thinking, well, you know, that's not what liberalism really is. It's not what we see on the left and it's not what we see on the right. So can you untangle that a little bit? In most of the world, liberalism has the same meaning that it always did. But you're quite right that in the United States and to some extent in Canada, uh, liberal has come to mean the left. And I think the reason for that is that beginning in the late 19th century and for much of the early part of the 20th century, there was a movement called progressivism. And progressivism wanted to use science to make the human race progress. And the particular kind of science that they uh, advocated for at first was kind of unsavory. They Eugenics. The, the early progressives were all strong eugenicists, and they wanted to use selective breeding to improve the human race. So it's actually pretty terrifying. But progressives, to be fair, progressives since 1933 or so have mostly said, the job of government should be to improve the lives of those who are least well off because they're caught in a web of gigantic powers that are beyond their capacity to resist. So corporations, large institutions, individuals are not able to act as equals in the face of those gigantic powers. And so we're going to have the state put a thumb on the scale to balance powers in favor of the masses. 
Now, progressivism is not really consistent with liberalism. So it's odd that that's what many people who are progressives, who should be called progressives now, would call themselves liberals because they're not so concerned about rule of law. They're not so concerned about equality before the law in terms of opportunity. What they're worried about is equality of outcome, which means that they would like to redistribute income and wealth and in some cases power, in order to get a purely equal society. The problem is that the liberalism would say equality before the law means we get all treated the same by the state. To achieve equality of outcome, the state has to treat us unequally, handicapping those who are most able, who produce the most value, who have the most ability, the most energy for whatever reason. And that's the, it is Orwellian to call that sort of enforced redistribution to get an equality of outcome, to call that liberalism is just mistaken. But it, it is what the word has come to mean in the United States, at least. So classical liberals are those who try to separate themselves from progressivism and from left liberalism, saying that their commitment is to minimal government and the rule of law. And so there aren't that many classical liberals, but it, it is pretty clear, I think, what the meaning of classical liberalism is. It is a harking back to the older meaning of liberalism. Okay, that's great. And and that's pretty consistent with, with what I've been reading through reading things like The Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek. And I'm just going to pull up a quote here, which I think highlights that in a way. He says... It is true, of course, that in Germany before 1933 and in Italy before 1922, communists and Nazis or fascists clashed more frequently with each other than the, with other parties. They competed for the support of the same type of mind and reserved for each other the hatred of the heretic, but their practice showed how closely they are related to both the real enemy, the man with whom they had nothing in common, and whom they could not hope to convince, is the liberal of the old type. So what you're describing here is the liberal of the old type. And hence classical, that's exactly right. Okay. And so then you talk then about now how there is this classical liberal diaspora. Uh, so what is a diaspora? Well, a, a diaspora is a being scattered or uh, tribes living in basically exile. And so it, it, the, usual, the first diaspora that was described in the Hebrew Bible was the scattering of the tribes of Israel. Um, we now use diaspora to uh, describe the casting ar around the world involuntarily of the enslaved people from Africa. Uh, the diaspora now has come to describe a number of involuntary scattering of groups. Uh, what I want, my question about the classical liberal diaspora is that it seems to me that classical liberals, many of them found, in the United States at least, many of them found a home in the Republican Party. And there was long time, for a long time, there was a coalition at least, even if it was fraught. And there were often uh, tensions within that coalition. But now both conservatives and leftists have little use for classical liberals. And so the tribes of classical liberalism are scattered. Right, right. So that kind of reflects back to that Hayek quote where it was that one kind of mind that is very different than that doesn't have anything to do with the two other groups. Um, and one way of looking at it, too, I think, is that, you know, American politics have become very tribal and, and America is not alone in that. But there tends to be this kind of dichotomy and this way of looking at things like there are the liberals, the progressives, uh, and there are the conservatives. And these two are warring with each other. And they're thinking, well, we have to have the ring of power, as you alluded to earlier, in order to enforce our views on the other side and vice versa. But then there's this third group that is scattered, as you're saying, and that is the classical liberals who really think, leave everybody be and let everybody live their lives as long as they don't act 
in violence or in fraud against somebody else, they should be allowed to do what they want, even if I don't like it. If they're adults, they should be allowed to do what they want. And so what you're saying here too then, Michael, is that in the past, and I believe you're referring to in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you had this kind of coalition between those classical liberals and the conservatives because they had certain things in common. But now uh, they've come to that bridge where they're at the end of their commonalities, in a sense. And, and they, the conservatives now are really starting to show that they resemble more the progressives. They're just like two sides of the same coin. Yes. It seemed to me that in the late 70s, there was broad disaffection with what was seen as sort of inert, ineffective government. So the, the first big movement in the direction of classical liberalism in the United States, surprisingly, was under Jimmy Carter, who implemented uh, programs of deregulation on uh, airlines, uh, rail travel, there, there are many different some some consumer protection uh, laws were deregulated. So there was a big movement towards getting government to reduce the scope of government in dictating to people their choices. And maybe it's some minor things, but so as a result, there's a big increase in airline travel and a big decline in prices. So when you multiply that throughout the economy and throughout the government, you get Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. And Ronald Reagan was just explicitly a classical liberal, perhaps the most classical liberal uh, president the United States has ever had. Now, you can say that there were things that Reagan did in foreign policy and protectionism that perhaps were not as classical liberal as his words were. But in terms of rhetoric, the high watermark of classical liberalism actually in government, in power, was in the Reagan administration. The Clinton administration, which was elected in 1992, responded by adopting many of those same programs. Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over. We're getting rid of welfare as you know it. And so classical liberalism is the claim that if the government backs off from regulating the private, non-harmful actions of individuals, the individuals will create new emergent structures of cooperation. We'll see private associations, we'll see new firms, new products, and all of that activity will increase the prosperity and the connectedness, the social connectedness of uh, citizens of the United States. And so from, from 1980, maybe 1978, through about 1996, towards the end of the Clinton, the second Clinton administration, was the high watermark of classical liberalism joined with a kind of conservatism. Now, the thing that made conservatism amenable to classical liberalism in the United States was a commitment to the Constitution. And the U.S. Constitution, unlike the constitutions of most nations, was a commitment to limited government. So if you look at the French Constitution, it says that the right of freedom to speak of speech, no one will be disquieted on account of their speech, provided that their speech is not against the law. That's not actually a protection. <laughs> the U.S. First Amendment says that Congress will make no law regarding and then five different freedoms. So the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights in particular are a classical liberal document. They explicitly limit the government to the extent that conservatives were dedicated to preserving the Constitution. There was a natural symbiosis between American conservatism of the Reagan and even Clinton kind and classical liberalism. All of that started to end in the late 90s, and it was blown to bits starting in uh, September 11, 2001, by the terrorist attacks on New York and the Pentagon, because the United States took a very sharp turn towards an emphasis on security, the uh, Patriot Act, spying by government, and saying that we're going to have to give up freedom in order to achieve security. And ever since then, there has been a widening gulf, first on security matters and lately um, with a kind of economic populism in the mid and later 2000 teens, we have moved towards 
a an emphasis on the need for government to engage in populist economic policy that looks just like progressivism. And in fact, Tucker Carlson has praised, Tucker Carlson, the conservative, once conservative commentator, has praised Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And so you have pretty extreme progressives that are saying government should act much more aggressively in the economy to direct industrial policy. And you have conservatives saying, yes, that's exactly right. Wow. Okay. So what I'd like to know, before we get into kind of more of the differences of the classical liberals and, and what, you're, what you're starting to talk about here, is I think about politics as people voting for the ones that they want to represent them. Like the politicians represent the times. They represent the sentiment, the thoughts of the people, the tendencies. And I was born in the late 80s. So the whole Reagan era is something that I don't remember firsthand. So, But I do remember that there were very good television shows and movies and films and stories. And, and that was a cultural moment that I think was kind of wholesome and there were coming-of-age stories, and, and it was kind of a good time, you know, and, and nowadays people have nostalgia for that era. So what was it that led up to this kind of classical liberal revival throughout the culture that became, I guess, maybe this two-way mirror with the president at the time? Well, I think that's exactly the right question to ask, and the way that you've put it is also it leads us towards a fundamental insight. Um, I, in my little paper about the classical liberal diaspora, note that a political theorist named uh, Patrick Deneen has said that liberalism is an attempt to get rid of all rules and all culture and only to use rules to limit what people want. And the way that you asked the question actually is a segue to the consideration of that point. What happened in the 80s and the 90s, and it was sort of wholesome, there was great economic growth, but there was also a sense of American puissance, that there was a military power, the United States was it, we rolled up Iraq in 1992 in 100 hours, and we kicked them out of Kuwait and said, we'll come back if you mess with us again, there was the idea of the end of history in the sense that religious and political debates were going to end. There would be no more civil war because we all knew that constitutional republics uh, were going to be created around the world. And so we start to get uh, in, in the Middle East and in Europe, there was a movement towards democracy. The former Soviet Union is broken up by 1993. The Berlin Wall falls in 89, and uh, the Soviet Union is completely broken up by 1993. George Will famously said that the Cold War is over and the University of Chicago won. And what he meant by that was that this economic view of free markets and prosperity and an increase in the ability of people to live their own lives and achieve flourishing. Just whatever their own goals were, they were able to achieve them because they had these opportunities. That was going to spread everywhere. And I think the mistake was that classical liberals became complacent and we became convinced that we didn't need to make a moral argument in favor of the government programs that we favored. We just figured if everybody got rich, they would agree that markets and liberty were great. And what has happened instead is that by if you, if you look through the 2000s, there's, there continued to be economic growth, but there was more of a sense of economic precarity people were no longer sure what their place was in the world. Am I, am I going to continue to work with this job? The people, the young people who came of age, uh, graduated from college in 2008, 2009, 2010, there weren't very many jobs. 
since the only promise that was being made by classical liberals and conservatives is if you vote for us, you will have prosperity. Not that you'll, you'll be morally satisfied, not that you'll be part of a church or a community association, but you'll have enough money to live and you'll be happy. And then it didn't deliver on that promise. People started to look somewhere else. So I worry that classical liberals have sort of bought the economistic line that all we have to do is have markets. We told the former Soviet Union this. We told Russia this, and it didn't happen. So the, Russia's move back towards authoritarianism and uh, Russian Orthodox religion is partly a consequence of the broken promises of what they saw as a move to markets. And many places, markets are not what happens if there is no government. You have to have a set of institutions to reduce the transactions cost of trustworthy exchange. If you don't have a finance system, you don't have an independent court system, capitalism can't flourish. So I think the complacency of, cap of classical liberals is what gives some credence to the claim of Patrick Deneen and others that liberalism has failed. And that was the title of his book, Liberalism Has Failed. Okay, well, that's that's great, Michael. Thank you for that information. Uh, that helps me to put some of the pieces together. These are questions I have wondered about for a long time. And in there, though, there's something that I want to bring up to you and bounce off of you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with Bruce Party, who's a Canadian law prof. And we talked about how there are these different arguments for liberty. And he says that often there's the kind of utility argument, which is the first one that you were saying was being employed, like economic outcomes are better. You'll be wealthier. You'll be more prosperous if you do it this way. This is the best solution. This is the best system. And th these garner the best results. But then what you're saying here is that there was a lack of the moral argument for liberty. And I think that there's something in there, because if we look now at the progressives and we look at the neocons, they both uh, claim that their morality is better and that this is, this is kind of the, the type of argument that seems to get a lot of people's hearts and minds, the moral argument. But I'm going to throw a third thing your way to think about. Um, and I think that in this third way, there could be some hope for classical liberalism. And that is, in the third way, you're just basically saying, well, the moral argument is also tricky because we can always say that my morality is better than your morality and morality in some way can be subjective. But if we just say that liberty for its own sake, the sake of being left alone and being able to make decisions for yourself. Just that, kind of the non-violence, the non-aggression principle, in a sense. Um, more complex than that, but let's just kind of, you know, narrow it down to that. The essence of don't tread on me, <laughs> essentially, that libertarian argument. There might be a time for that now, because we've seen this rising authoritarianism in the past few years. People have been exposed to that uh, imposition, the moral imposition of the collectivists who want to tell us what we need to do for the greater good, right? Um, so I think that there's some space there to make the argument for liberty that's not based on utility or morality either. What are your thoughts? Well, it is a kind of moral argument if you start with people's rights. So one of the way to tell mm -hmm. the difference between a classical liberal and a real libertarian is their attitude toward antitrust law. Classical liberals would tend to say antitrust law is okay because uh, there sh you shouldn't be allowed to engage in price fixing. So if two different producers want to get together and raise their prices and have a contract to do it, classical liberals would say that should be illegal. Libertarians would say, well, no, it's their stuff. If they want to engage in a voluntary contract between themselves, they can charge whatever price they want. The government shouldn't be able to regulate it. And so that 
that sort of litmus test about telling what telling whether someone's a real libertarian indicates that classical liberals are concerned about the consequentialist claim that free markets with competition produce better outcomes. Libertarians are more concerned about individual rights. If this property is mine, then it's mine. You can't tell me what price I can charge for it. And so I think that's something that classical liberals and libertarians have been fussing with each other about. The big difficulty about moral arguments or the sense of being embedded in a social context where I, as human being, a, a social animal, feel like I have some place and some meaning, goes back to uh, Montesquieu and the spirit of the laws in 1750. And I cite this in the paper, and I think it's worth reading. So the, this 1750, so this is a very long time ago, almost 300 years ago. It is true that in democracies, the people seem to act as they please. But political liberty does not consist in an unlimited freedom. In governments, that is, in societies directed by laws, liberty consists only in the power of doing what we ought to will and in not being constrained to do what we ought not to will. So what he means is we cannot be forced to do things against our will. That's the gift of liberty. So the government is constrained. It can't make us do things we don't want to do. But we are obliged to want to do good things. And the thing about liberalism and the contradiction in liberalism that Patrick Deneen has argued for is, yes, but liberalism says you get to want anything. In his case, he's very upset about same-sex marriage. So that's something that really upsets him, and he, he thinks that is not something people should want to, be, to, to do because it violates his moral sentiments. So the, the difficulty that classical liberals have is we have to nurture institutions that provide moral guidance. Maybe they're churches, maybe they're clubs, maybe they're some sorts of, of neighborhood associations. But there has to be something that's a substitute. There has to be some source of moral guidance because we want a minimal set of laws. Within the laws, you can do most anything that you want. But you should want to do what you ought to will. So with liberty comes responsibility. And I don't think that classical liberals have done a very good job of answering that. What people see is just the destruction of all the social norms that used to constrain our behavior. And now it's just the Wild West. If you, you, you get some money and you can do anything that you want, you can violate what once would have been moral restrictions. Right. Listen, that makes so much sense. And I think that there's a key in there about how uh, conservatives look at this libertinism. And because of the manipulation of language and this kind of redefining of the word liberal, I've read pieces where, where conservatives have said, you know, liberalism is to blame the very enlightenment itself in a sense, is to blame for this mess that we've got ourselves into. Everything that brought us all of this knowledge and prosperity and the scientific process and reason and all of that is somehow to blame because this is the, uh, the algorithmic outcome. This is, this is what happens if we let this thing go this way without moral constraint. Yep. So without restriction and without government restraint, everything goes towards chaos. And so since we have lost, in their view, and there's something to this, you know, the, many of the traditional moral restrictions have been broken to the point where people don't take them very seriously. They think the Constitution is dead. So th this is modern national conservatives in the United States. They think the Constitution is dead. It's already gone. The only remaining strategy that's available to conservatives is to gain and keep the power to force people to do what they ought to want to do and would want to do if morals were being enforced. And so that's, that's a terrible idea. That's the worst idea that I can think of, that liberalism arose in a setting where you have these gigantic wars over who gets to name the moral authority. So I'm worried that we're moving in the direction that 
we saw in Europe between 1500 and 1800, where it's just constant wars of trying to be able to impose your moral system by force. And maybe it lasts 20 years, but after 20 years you lose and somebody else's moral system is enforced. Liberalism is nobody gets to enforce a moral vision, and maybe you're not as happy as you would be if you were in charge, but you won't always be in charge. Your side is going to lose. Right, and you talk about that, you, you say, let me try and find the quote here. Give me a second, I highlighted it from your text. <laughs> My own claim is that the argument for limited government can be stated simply, never build a sword so powerful that you don't want to see it wielded by your worst enemy after the next election, because it will be, and much sooner than you think. So why is it then? Why is it that progressives who are, you know, they seem to have a lot of a lot of hold right now, but, you know, there is a rising uh, conservative power, uh, neoconservative power on the rise. Why is it that you think that they think it's okay to do this kind of thing? Like, why don't they prioritize liberty? Why do they prioritize their own um, idea of virtue and morality? Both sides think the other side is not going to play by the rules. So I think I mentioned in the paper also, uh, November 10th, 2016, so a couple of days after the election of Donald Trump had become clear, uh, a friend of mine who's a leftist, who's at the public policy school, came into my office and shut the door and said, I was reading the Federalist Papers. There's some good shit in there. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the, the, the restrictions on government power, those are good things. That's true. And they were two weeks ago when Barack Obama was president. So why are you only coming to me now? And they said, well, I wasn't so worried when my side was in charge. That's the point. If you concentrate power in the person of the president, so if you strip away at the constitutional separation of powers and concentrate power in the hands of the president, and then you're just so surprised, gosh, the other side won. Can they do that? Are they allowed? Yes, they are allowed to do that. That's the way democracies work. So what you have to do is not concentrate power in government institutions in the first place. But that's very frustrating because you could do so much good work if you could just exercise the ring of power. So I, I both sides seem, because during, during Trump, during the Trump administration, the right was concentrating power in the person, the president, exercising uh, legislative power, basically through executive orders. And then, of course, as soon as Biden became president, they're saying, well, Federalist Papers, there's some good stuff in there. Yes, the, but the problem is that has to be true independent of who's president. Your evaluation of limited government cannot be contingent on your boy being in power. So that's that's a really great point, and uh, I love that story. I thought that that was funny when you wrote it out, and even better when you say it out loud. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what I'd like to zone in on here, though, is the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, the foundation of the United States of America. Okay, why did it work so well in the beginning? Was it based on the classical liberal tradition? Was it based on a blend, a kind of the fusionism of co more conservative uh, moral values and classical liberal values in terms of how we should uh, apply the law to this whole experiment. I mean, what's what are your thoughts on the founding, why it works so well, and now why it's crumbling? I think the mystery is why it took so long to crumble. There's two important facts. One is the United States was born in a difficult war separating itself from an extremely autocratic power. And they wanted to try then to resist the temptation to create a new autocratic power, because it's not that difference. If one happens to be an English king and the other is an American king, like causes are going to produce like results. So they wanted to decentralize the power. The other is that the American 
experience was primarily people who were so pissed off about government, they left their traditional homeland, which is not easy. So people in, in England, in Germany, in Sweden, in Italy, in France, all of the, the European countries, the people who left were not a random sample of the population. They were the people that were poor, oppressed, and were skeptical of centralized power. They moved to a continent, which was enormous. And if a state or city was autocratic and tried to exercise power over you, you just got up and left, which meant that the ability of people to move to the frontier, and the frontier was enormous. The frontier was, for a century, the frontier was enormous. People had an exit option. So they'd already exited once. And if a state or local government was too autocratic, they would just leave again. And so the, the limitation that was placed on the ability of governments to exercise coercion by the fact that people had this exit option and that our institutions came about as a result of a, a desire not to have concentrated power meant that those, those separated power institutions could be exploited by people whose basic ideology was against centralized government. Those who wanted centralized government, maybe they stayed back in the East, but there was a constant movement towards the West that limited the ability of any government to exercise much power. Now, that worked for a long enough time that it became ingrained into American culture. It wasn't just the exit option. It was the way we thought about things. Many people in government, many people in the Supreme Court just thought there should be limitations on what government can do. That started to change with the rise of progressives in the late 19th and early 20th century, and it was completely broken apart in the early 30s by the Roosevelt administration and the basically fascist impulses of the New Deal. Many New Deal theorists were openly admiring of the Mussolini administration in uh, Italy, its ability to get so many things done, so much public work, so much employment. So the, the, the problem with progressivism was that it was actually modeled on a kind of soft fascism. And you can understand why, because it seemed like Italy was able to accomplish things. The U.S. was not because it was hamstrung by separation of powers and a Supreme Court that wanted to enforce the right of freedom of contract that was guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. All of those things were blown up between 1933 and 1936. That makes a lot of sense. And I, th I recall speaking with Phil Magnus about this and others as well about how during that time, there was also an infiltration of academia in America with European ideas, uh, specifically German ideas. And Hayek, again, wrote about this in The Road to Serfdom, how there was this um, change from the idea that, you know, liberalism was a good thing and that free markets and laissez-faire uh, capitalism was good to this idea that we had to find this kind of middle way at best, you know, then there was like fascism further down the spectrum or socialism further down the spectrum. But the idea was that we have to manage the economy. We have to manage social life. There needs to be consensus. It was the kind of social engineering and the economic engineering that started uh, to have, I guess, a um, an infection, this kind of infectious uh, uh, nature of these kinds of ideas that spread throughout Europe. We saw both of the world wars, I think, you know, happen in large part because of those ideas. And then ironically, they came to America, the very same place where people a few centuries ago had fled, you know, that kind of centralized power and this idea that you could control everything from the top down without, you know, separation of powers and without that kind of limit on on the uh, exercise of power. And then they kind of brought it back to America. And maybe that's where things started to go wrong. Well, it's certainly where things started to change. Um, you can see it went wrong from my perspective, but you can see why it would be attractive to people who feel like that the 
progress and prosperity of the economy is not as much as it could be if it were more centrally planned. And in both of the wars, there was, not surprisingly, a lot of centralized planning because war is just a different enterprise than uh, commercial markets. War, you would mm -hmm. centralize power so that you could get the resources to produce things and then create an army that has the armaments that it needs. That almost has to be centralized. And then during the 1930s, the when I said fascism before, I didn't necessarily mean it as a criticism. I don't it didn't have the racial elements uh, that European fascism did. Fascism is just the government control of the means of production in cooperation with large corporations. So it's not communism. It's not the, the ownership of the means of production. But it is government direction of the means of production with the cooperation of large industrial units. And so there was a lot of theories that having these large monopolies, because of the economies of scale that are created by the corporate form, the, the system could be much more efficient. In the 1915s, Frederick Taylor uh, talked about the, about scientific management. And so the idea of centralized scientific management and Max Weber's theory of bureaucracy as a way of carrying out much more efficient and rational management of large economic resources, there, you can see why it was attractive. It actually took people like uh, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich von Hayek to explain why that kind of central planning literally can't work because it can't get the information that it would need in the absence of prices that give you information about the relative scarcity of resources. So it, it, with, with hindsight, yes, we can say it was a bad idea, but I'm not sure you can say things were going wrong. It was an experiment that everyone in the world was trying, and it was probably inevitable that that was going to happen. It's just that in hindsight, yes, that's where things went wrong. Hmm. So that sounds as well like what you were just describing at the end of your of your uh, thoughts there was uh, technocracy or the the roots of technocracy. But now here's the thing, Michael, is that we do have the ability to collect large amounts of data, uh, and we have the ability to do it with AI. You know, so um, do you see that this kind of tendency towards technocracy? that we seem to be leaning into now, this experiment, in your words, uh, seems to be kind of happening again in another way. Uh, do you think that there's any possibility of success? Or do you think that this the same lessons that we learn from Hayek and Mises apply here? I wrote something for AIER not long ago about this. A big difficulty that we have is that Mises and Hayek and others called this debate the socialist calculation debate. And so what is required is you need to calculate the relative value of different resources so as to decide where to allocate them. So suppose there's some production process we've agreed we want to engage in. One, th one way of making it Let's call it a widget. One way of making the widget takes 10 pounds of iron. The other takes one ounce of gold. Which one uses less resources? Well, we could have a database that tells us the location and amount of all the available iron and the location and amount of all the available gold and all the other resources. So we could have a database that has all the information about resources. What we don't know is prices. Prices emerge as a product of the bargaining over subjective values that people engage in in buying and selling. I have plans and purposes, you have plans and purposes. Prices adjust dynamically as a result of us engaging in commercial activity. It's not an input, it's an output of commercial activity. If you take the commercial activity away, it doesn't matter how much computing power you have, you cannot calculate relative prices. So I have claimed that it would have been better, I looked up the German word that means is used, and it could be translated as calculation, but it's probably better translated as generation. What, what, what needs to happen is you have to have a system that generates 
the information, which is completely different. The generation of prices is what is required in a large decentralized system. I am afraid, though, that your question hits on something important. We are going to have to relearn that lesson in long, dreary decades because we believe that, well, we've got all this new computing power and this is a calculation problem. It's not. The information is generated as a result of commercial activity and there is literally no substitute for that. It's impossible. It's not difficult for a planning system to mimic those results. So this actually is a good segue to come back towards um, not your article, but your summary of your talk that you gave on the classical liberal diaspora. And that is because you talk about a couple of different kinds of liberals here. And the one specifically that came to mind now was that of the remnant, as in Isaiah's job remnant. And some of the people listening to this, probably many will know what it is. I'll link it in the show notes so that people can go read it for themselves. Um, but the remnants basically are those who kind of wait it out and wait till the masses have seen the destruction of their tendencies. And then they are there to kind of pick up the pieces and show them the way. So do you want to talk a little bit about the remnant? Because you say that this is one of the two major visions of classical liberalism, remnantism and fusionism. And maybe I'm not explaining yeah. it the same way you would. So go ahead. You're explaining exactly the same way I would. I claim <laughs> that remnantism is Albert J. Nock in his book, Our Enemy, the State, and then Isaiah's job in 1936. Uh, it, it, the, the Isaiah quote, the quote from Isaiah is, the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape the mount, they escape out of Mount Zion. And so, if you can just take the seeds of classical liberalism and preserve it for a time when the soil, the political soil, is more fertile. So we will remember, we'll have books and, you know, persuasive articles that once people come to their senses and they realize that the planning system is doomed to failure, then we'll be able to come out of hiding and begin once again to try to persuade people of the right course of action. Now, that's a pretty apocalyptic way of putting it, but that's the way I think some people, including Albert J. Nock, thought of, in this, he wrote that in 1935, thought of the position of classical liberalism. The alternative that you said, as, as I said, was fusionism. And the problem with fusionism is that classical liberals would need someone sympathetic to fuse with. And conservatives, by and large, have become populists. And so remnantism is not a very satisfying, although actually I have some friends that are big fans of remnantism because they, they think that they can stand out somewhere in their marijuana patch and hold their AK-37 or 47 over their head. And, you know, the, eventually the world will come around and they'll be able to share their uh, Ludwig von Mises volumes and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll start to make a comeback. So the remnantism is not a very sad, we need some third way. As you said a while ago, isn't there some third way? And it may be that classical liberals can start to make a more persuasive version, a positive, optimistic version of the vision of the future. That if you return to the ideas of liberty, if you recognize that the, the, the fights that you get over the control of concentrated power makes it not worth it. But that means we would have to go be aggressive. We would actually have to go out into politics. We'd have to participate in politics in a way that a lot of us are just not very temperamentally suited for doing. So I'm, I'm afraid mm. that a lot of us are going to become remnants and just try to preserve the last flickering flame of truth until it comes time to put the seed down in newly fertile ground. 
Well, you know, Michael, to be honest, I can identify with uh, with being a remnant in a sense, and that's that's I, I've kind of leaned into that. I'm always open to to new ideas and to change for sure. But when I read that text, it really affected me a lot because I thought we've spent a lot of time, especially in the past few years, trying to convince people that you know their way isn't working out. That this you know you can't impose this kind of stuff on people. And it hasn't really done any good. And we've ended We're up, losing. you know, getting we, some we should, battle we wounds. Should, yeah. yeah. We're losing. Well, well, but I, I suppose that I read it a little bit a different way was just that there are some things that just inevitably kind of play out. And it's kind of like going against the tides of the ocean that are coming in, crashing against the shore. And sometimes you just have to learn how to ride the wave you know, like a surfer. So that's that's a little bit more my interpretation of the remnant. I don't think that it's a defeatist position necessarily. I think it can be interpreted that way, but I think it can also mean knowing when you have a good opportunity um, to be able to get through to somebody and knowing when you should be focused on on your own well-being. We're losing the battles, but I think our ideas are better. So we will ultimately win the war. The problem is the war doesn't stay won. That's the lesson from the complacency of the 80s and 90s. There was this triumphalism. And okay, we're done. Classical liberalism <laughs> rules everything. And it didn't because we ignored our obligation to explain things in positive, optimistic, moral terms. And that's the lesson I think we should take. Uh, we, our ideas will come back. And we have a strong remnant that will preserve the power of these ideas and we'll be able to present them again, maybe in three years, maybe five years, maybe 10, but it'll come back. As it, in 1935, the many people in the US thought, well, the New Deal is, is over, we're gonna become communist. That didn't happen. And it, we, we will come back again from this bout of populism. But what I want to, point out and put a flag in is the dangers of the complacency that sort of hastened the, the rapidity of the fall of classical liberalism. So between about 2005 and now, 20 years, the United States has cl changed completely in the complexion of political debate. Instead of discussing um, the limitations on government, we have two parties that are competing about how they can increase the size and power of government more. And the election is going to be won by who can make the biggest promise about what they're, they're going to do to take money from taxpayers and give it to voters. Yeah, you know, I actually saw a video of JFK uh, the other day. And listen, I'm sympathetic with a lot of his views in the sense, but um, it's like the big government is the default position. And he he did this video talking about how he was going to help people buy houses and Uncle Sam was going to lend them money at low interest rates to be able to buy houses. And I, I just did a podcast last week with Paul Mueller at AIER about the 2008 financial crisis, talking about how the Clinton administration had done a similar thing. And that had actually set up some of the conditions for the collapse down the road. And so I think it's, it's just tough to be in that spot where big government is the default. Um, yeah, I don't really have a question, but that's what do you think? Well, but that that your the big government is always going to be the default because it makes promises. You've been denied something. Vote for me, and I will make sure that you get the good things that you deserve. That's always going to be an attractive story. It is much harder for our side to say no. That won't won't work. You have to eat your broccoli. So we have to make a, a more positive, optimistic vision uh, that, well, I, I ran for governor in 2008 and had a lot of experience with this. I was in four televised debates with the other candidates, uh, with the Republican and Democrat candidate, the people who actually were running for governor. And so being in those debates, I learned a lot about talking to people about these kinds of problems. I would describe why being left alone and allowed to flourish on your own is probably better. And they'd say, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. But tell me, if you were elected government, what would you give me? Well, you're missing the point. What I will give you is a chance to be free 
from restrictions. I will make sure that there aren't regulations and barriers that prevent you from accomplishing the things that you want. But it's hard for that to go up against promises of vote for me and I will give you other people's money. We're always going to be at a disadvantage. The advantage that we have is that our system works and theirs doesn't. Yeah, no, I think that that's a really good point. And as I was saying earlier, I think that there really is this kind of opportunity now for that kind of argument because we've been through so much in the last few years. And, I, and I'll, you know, talk about um, certain people I see on Twitter who are from the left and certain people who are from the right who now feel like they don't belong to either side and they're just kind of trying to figure out where they fall. And those are probably the classical liberals among us. Uh, and and they're just, you know, kind of riding this out too. But I think that I think that, you know, coming up with coming up with better arguments could be a way to do it. Are there any other are there any other kind of things that you think that we should be doing? Uh, or like what what do we do? What do we do moving forward, according to you, Michael Munger? I would say that we need to address head-on the arguments of the national conservative populists. So the ones that say, well, Saurabh Amari and Tucker Carlson have both said the, the, the politicians they feel closest to are Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And that means that something has broken. So we need to find a new political coalition. And the difficulty is, and this I'm, I am not such a fan of the, the remnant idea, because I'm actually a big L libertarian politician. I run for office every even-numbered year. Now, I lose, but participating in that gives me a chance to frame arguments, I think, that are in a way that are more effective. One thing that might make a difference, a number of states have used... Um, systems of voting that would enable third parties to participate more effectively. And so if you have uh, one of the, the ranked systems for voting, that means that you're not throwing away your vote if you vote for a third party because the single transferable vote then goes to the, the next, the party that's doing next best. That would allow us maybe to participate in coalition governments. And one of the things that's interesting about politics is if you have a fairly evenly matched political system and the Democrats and Republicans both have 48% of the voters, the remaining 4% is what determines the outcome of elections. So we might have an opportunity if we can actually appeal strongly to a pretty small number and then say this block of voters is available to whoever is going to come closest to classical liberalism. Now, the difficulty with that, and this is something that you yourself might be sympathetic to, the difficulty is that means that you're selling out. You're actually going to say we're going to vote the lesser of two evils. And if you vote the lesser of two evils, you're voting for evil. And so the seeing yourself as the block that decides the outcome of elections is at best a marginal improvement. But as it stands, the, the, liber the big L libertarian party has a real uphill climb because not very many people are persuaded by the more extreme sort of libertarian arguments. Now, you know, I think if I could talk to everyone in the country for 10 minutes, I could persuade like thousands not millions, but I could persuade thousands that this actually is sensible. So the, the, those, those things tend not to operate very well at scale. And so we have parties at bars and have a couple of beers and congratulate ourselves about how this small remnant actually knows the truth and most people don't. Hmm. So the, I, I, a lot of us are frustrated with that sort of complacency. We're going to have to participate in some sort of mass political movement or just pull back and take the remnant strategy. I don't think there's an alternative to those two things. Well, listen, um, we've covered a lot of ground. I really enjoyed having you here. You do a lot of podcasts, a lot of talks. You're very active. And so I suggest people go watch your stuff, go read your stuff at AIER.org and elsewhere. Uh, they can follow you on Twitter as well. And um, 
Any last thoughts that you would like to leave us with on the classical liberal diaspora? Well, I am basically optimistic, and I do think if people are looking for something that they could try to work on in the short run, it is to try to get ranked choice voting in their city, in their county, in their state. Because ranked choice voting is a way of getting participation in politics that will open it up. Now, a lot of people from the two state sponsored parties are opposed to it, but a lot of voters, we need some successes. It would be nice for us to go for something and actually to achieve it. And ranked choice voting, I think, is something that is within our grasp because it's not a partisan issue. Many of the people that vote D or R in the United States are actually not fans of the DNR. And most people, if you ask, they would say, yes, I wish there could be a third party. Well, ranked choice voting is a way of at least beginning to have a third party that actually would have a chance of at least participating in influencing the debate. Cool. Well, I really appreciate your time, Michael. Thank you so much and uh, hope to have you back on Liberty Curious soon. Thanks so much. It was great to be on.